Uh, if they called the Navy's line and the UFO was in flight, we would route it to the Air Force. And welcome to Fishy Business, a series dedicated to exploring the lesser-known side of cybersecurity. I'm Alice. And I'm Brian, and we're colleagues at Mimecast. Every episode, we'll be joined by a special visitor, who's definitely not your average guest, to share tales of risk, reward, and ridiculousness. We'll be looking for new ways to think about cybersecurity, to learn how we can all improve in the fight to stay safe. Our guest this week founded the U.S. Navy's Cyber Counterintelligence Program inside the Naval Criminal Investigative Service, the NCIS, same one as on the TV show, at the age of just 21. That is one of the most impressive things I've heard, and he didn't stop there. In the 30 years since then, starting today and working backwards, Brian Hurd currently holds the title Chief of Office Seattle at Strauss Friedberg, which is part of the Aon Insurance Group, where he runs major cyber breach responses. He's also held multiple executive positions. This one sounds quite interesting. He was the first director of intelligence for the Digital Crimes Unit within the Microsoft Cyber Crime Center. He also founded the Computer Forensics Program at EDS, which is now HP, and was the executive in charge of innovation for the entire US watch listing system, holding the position of Chief of Operations, Director of Terrorist Identities at the National Counterterrorism Center, otherwise known by its acronym, the NCTC. I can't wait to dig into all of this. Welcome, Brian. Why, thank you very much for uh, putting this on today. Oh, thank you. And Brian, you've clearly had an absolutely incredible and interesting, very, very interesting career. How would you explain what you do to somebody at a dinner party, for example? First and foremost, I would explain my entire career as being quite fortunate to get to work with some of the best teams on the planet. Uh, My current career, the term of art I sometimes use is a cyber smoke jumper. Uh, The people that uh, after a wisp of smoke and a report of a problem, uh, literally and figuratively jump on a plane with a backpack full of gear and a shovel and come help out. And uh, so we respond in in times of incident, but also we try and uh, help people before an incident. Uh, However, we're often most known for the uh, cyber smoke jumper part of the business. That's amazing. And I love that analogy. I actually haven't heard that one before. And to have founded the US Navy's Cyber Counterintelligence Program at just the age of 21, how did your journey actually begin? So when I graduated from the US Naval Academy, I joined NCIS in Washington, D.C. and was part of the Terrorism Center. Um, And on days off from the Terrorism Watch, started to look, and this is in 1993, uh, for those of you a little younger, before the web existed, (laughs) And started to look at the burgeoning uh, networks as a threat of uh, counter-espionage and counter-terrorism. And thanks to the leadership there, they gave a young kid a chance to explore a topic. And I worked with the teams there to develop that program. Uh, It was a great deal of fun and highly successful. Wow. Very impressive. And Brian, you've had many high-profile jobs and we're just starting to touch on them now. But what would you say has been the proudest moment of your career so far? Uh, besides, of course, being coming a parent three times over to uh, three young boys, uh, I would say the proudest moment of my career was um, unfortunately during the uh, attack at the Boston Marathon in the United States uh, many years back. Um, my boss walked into my office and asked if the case management system that I had been working on for me- for several years was ready for prime time. And uh 
I had not been watching TV that morning. I'd been doing my job at the terrorism center. And uh, then he said, we were going to brief the White House from it. And uh, it helped the case move faster. It helped us find the suspects faster together with a ton of work of hundreds of federal agents. But um, it was a, a, a great show of the fact that uh, years of trying to do it worked and uh, years of working with my counterparts to put that in place paid off in a very measurable way. And the topic most in the news recently has been ransomware. Um, the U.S. Department of Justice is elevating investigations of ransomware attacks to a similar priority as terrorism. What do you think about this? And what, from your experience, do you think all of this means? So when I was running Microsoft Cybercrime Center, uh, some senators would often come through the center and talk to us about these issues. So this was six, seven, eight years ago. And I spoke to Senator Lindsey Graham and some of the others who visited about the clear and present danger of ransomware stealing hundreds of millions and more uh, by basically terrorizing uh, hospitals and, and local municipalities. And the difference between most cyber attacks and this is the actual threat of physical harm. A person died in a hospital based on a ransomware attack and other things we're now seeing where there's real world impacts. I think it's great that the governments around the world are going to align and bring the right tools and the appropriate oversight to bear against what is a problem that hits every nation. And I think that's an important, critical part of the fight on ransomware because it is getting worse and they are getting bolder. And what are your views on how we actually go about doing things? Because a lot of ransomware type attacks are actually brushed under the carpet because there's very little legislation that forces organizations to declare a breach. It depends on which part of the world you're in. And there's talk at the moment in the United States of actually treating data breaches or ransomware attacks almost like aviation disasters and, and having a similar type of approach. What, uh, what are your views on, on, on that? You know, are there pros and cons? Can, are, are there things to be learned from um, other ways of doing things? I'm a big supporter of trying to get data to make decisions. So in terms of many of the regulators are going to require, whether it's the United States Security Exchange Commission or the other regulatory bodies, will require reporting. Whether that reporting is public or not is a great discussion to have among, uh, among the learned in those areas. Uh, I think that we need better statistics because we're not measuring it. Also, I participated with former members of the White House in a discussion of a cyber NTSB for those types of major plane crashes like the pipeline attack or other things that are more front page news. But I think we need solutions across the waterfront, not only for the, the ones that make the newspaper, but for the hundreds of companies that are suffering in silence, as you indicate. And so I think that uh, better data behind it, often coming from the insurance companies that know more about it than most, um, as well as some of that collaborative defense are going to be critical for an international solution to this problem. To that point around kind of a, the collaborative defense sensation, NATO actually, um, I'm sure you've seen recently mentioned that they'd consider taking a military response to cyber attacks. What are your thoughts there? How do you think that might work? And would you say that hackers are potentially becoming the new terrorists in that sense? I think terrorists are adopting hacking methodologies. So yes, they are. They are taking now the ability that people are truly and physically terrorized and endangered. Uh, and they are using those tools as they would use uh, delayed timers or other things in previous evolutions of terrorism. 
And one of the challenges we got, I'd actually like to circle back to this concept of requiring certain types of organizations to report cyber incidents. Um, so one of the big recent ransomware attacks targeted the colonial pipeline that was obviously big news at the time, and it prompted the Transportation Security Administration to actually consider regulation that would require pipeline companies and, and other critical infrastructure type organizations to report cyber incidents. Um, what, how do you think government could address this kind of issue? Where do you think the lines are and, and what could legislation look like in the US and, and globally? I think the, especially around critical infrastructure, there are many of the areas that we need that data reported. Now, how it's reported through which secure channels so that governments can make decisions and then what is public awareness are, are potentially related, but not always equal. I think it's an important part around hospitals, around critical infrastructure, that it's understood the true magnitude of the threat to the day-to-day -day lives of citizens all over the world. Um, that is the core part of government. It's to protect its populace from these types of threats. And they're able to get in in a non-traditional way. And if they're having a physical impact on a nation, the discussion of a physical response uh, is common. Uh, the attacks on the World Trade Center led to you know, a deployment of forces into Afghanistan, the safe haven from which the attack was launched. I think we're using right now a whole of government approach, more diplomacy than military in terms of discussions of uh, Commerce Department or grain subsidies or tariffs to deny the safe havens to those individuals more in a financial way. Uh, however, depending on the type of attack and response, that is a, an interesting discussion to be had and one we've been talking about for about 30 years now. Yeah, and I definitely agree with that. Um, if you actually look at where the skill sets lie, um, in certain countries, there's, there's a, a real lack of cybersecurity skills. Even in the US, there's, there's a, a massive number of, of open positions in cybersecurity in both the public and the private sector. Do you think there should be collaboration between governments and private companies? And, and what do you think that might actually look like? Uh, the great news is for many decades, there is that type of collaboration going. I think it's it's often under the cloak of shared intelligence agreements or joint operations among friendly nations. I think those efforts like NATO, like the George C. Marshall Center, like the UN talking about these, to normalize the fabric of appropriate law and response is also an augment. But I think on the very tactical level, there's a lot of great organizations that are sharing indicators of compromise or known methodologies of the bad guys across those boundaries. And to that end, with that sharing of information and going with that thought process, do you think that if, say, companies, um, different industries are more open about ransomware attacks, this could actually help other companies potentially become more conscious of the risks and, and help them to better defend themselves going forward? I think so. And some of it is underway in the Information Sharing and Analysis Center concept, the ISACs in the United States, one of which leading the way, the Financial Services ISAC. And of course, it's all over the globe. I was just speaking to the Singapore F, uh, uh, Financial Services ISAC. I think the birds of a feather, the chief information security officers, the general counsels of, a, of an economic vertical, manufacturing, hospitals, banks, 
they are doing a lot of that. And we need to facilitate and increase those, support those sharing organizations. Awareness at this point, I, I, most people are aware of the problem. They just don't think it applies to them. And I think that's the part of the awareness that the thing about uh, ransomware is it's multi-tiered. The same ransomware people targeting a Fortune 100 company are not the lower level groups targeting the ma and pa and small businesses all over the planet. And that is uh, a distinct difference. There's an adversary targeting you. And in in your view, do you think executives, I mean, just if you look at the example, um, you know, does the general public, executives are part of the general public, do they understand that an adversary is, is attacking them? Um, or is, does, does that kind of realization only really hit home when they can't get gas for their car? Um, and, and how do you think that kind of thing needs to, to help with awareness in, in, in the general public? And then if you can maybe just answer that in the connect, well, the next question along with that is saying, do you think organizations, executives and companies prepare enough for these kind of crises? Or do you think because they're, they're unaware of the consequences that, that there's probably less of it than there should be? I'll, I'll, I'll give a couple of analogies, but one of the things I'll start with is it's very hard in a job for you to walk up to your boss and in sometimes it was the head of the entire National Counterterrorism Center and say, nothing happened today, you're welcome, and then end your briefing and go back to your desk. Um, however, <laughs> for cybersecurity people, there's a balance between briefing, sir, we're attacked 10, 000, sir or madam, we're attacked 10,000 times today and nothing happened. Well, then why are you telling me this? So when something does happen, you realize that that was 10,001 or 100,001. Uh, those that balance of informing the threat fabric that's attacking you or the people that are targeting you. And we can talk about the particulars around around nations and then the the preparation that those things aren't happening. Then you have to expend a little bit of time in a busy day. You all don't have time in to do tabletops, to talk about your preparation plans, to have your fire drills in place. And then one final thought is uh, just a couple of days ago, we had a water main break, uh, you know, uh, about a mile or two from my house here in Kirkland, Washington, and we had to boil our own water. You really don't appreciate running water until you don't have it. <laughs> so whether it's electricity or water or your email or the ability to get to your information because it's been ransomed by ransomware, that is a you don't miss it until it's gone. And then you blame the people that delivered it the other 364 days. Absolutely. And I know sometimes when we're speaking to some of our customers and we try and say, you know, you want the insurance policy. Ideally, you want to never have to use it, but it's good always to have the insurance policy there with the types of executives that you're working with. What would your advice be to them around making sure that, you know, they're protecting themselves as much as they can and taking the necessary steps to, um, as you say, avoid having that unfortunate extra one <laughs> attack come through? Well, I would, again, and I'm honored to work as part of the, the Aon uh, Global Corporation with over 60,000 people in the insurance industry, and we're at, we are the cyber response and services unit. I think one of the things about insurance, again, in the context of home ownership, just because you have flood insurance doesn't mean you want to use it, and you should do everything you can to avoid, mitigate, or reduce the damage before an incident or know how to handle one should one occur. The same in cyber, and there's another misperception. To qualify for cyber insurance, you're going to have to do the same things to protect yourself. Just like you have to have smoke detectors and fire alarms and radon detectors now, a new thing for, for some of us older types. 
uh, to qualify for homeowner's insurance, you have to have multi-factor authentication, network segmentation, and lease privilege to qualify for cyber insurance to the underwriters who will place their bet on you. So many people may not understand that the process to apply for and qualify for insurance itself is informative in a roadmap of being better and avoiding a claim, because that's the goal of everybody involved. Don't have a fire. Don't have a flood that, that it gets inside your house. And I, I think some people miss that when looking at the insurance industry. They're not perfect, but they are trying to help you not have a fire. What is your opinion on, you know, there's to pay or not to pay? That is the question, essentially. And, and all the official guidance from agencies is, is to never pay. And that's certainly, you know, what we advocate. But is it always as black as and white as that? And, and what are your thoughts there? So the question, I guarantee you, nobody who's ever paid a ransom wanted to pay a ransom. Uh, so here's my question is, of course, we should not pay ransomware terrorists. Do you want your child back? And can you get your child back any other way? And if the adversary, it's extortion, it's not an option. If you don't have backups and can't reconstitute your business from your backups without paying for that decryption key, you're not deciding about whether to pay or not to pay. You're deciding whether you need that decryption key or you go out of business. It is so much, I believe the question, and, and I have that same thing, Alice and Brian, is I think the question is phrased in a way which drives to an answer which is actually not applicable. That's not what's being talked about in the boardroom. Nobody wants to pay a terrorist. Nobody wants to give in to an extortionist. That's why extortion works. You really don't have an option when you're at that point. Now, how to have not have that discussion? Spend the time and energy on preparation, hardening your systems, hardening identity, doing tabletops, having pen testing of people you trust so that it's not the adversary that's penetration testing your systems or applications or other things. As far as insuring um, and cyber insurance goes, the, the World Economic Forum, and I was actually almost considering not asking you this question because I think it's a bit unfair potentially, but, but I'd love to hear your answer because they published an article last year that uh, I think it was titled Cyber Insurance is Only a Few Claims Away from Disaster. And, and they made an argument that um, the cyber insurance industry was on fairly shaky ground. Would you agree with their assessment that the business model is fairly delicate and that only a handful of insured losses running into the hundreds of millions of dollars could actually take the industry decades to recover from? I think you've seen these types of huge issues in insurance many, many times. The number of hurricanes that is hitting uh, the Florida coastline here in the States or tsunamis in other locations where insurance uh, companies suddenly are literally hit with a number of claims that was not in the law of big numbers, the ultimate truth that runs the insurance industry. Uh, I don't know if you're going to have a house fire, Alice, but I know statistically how many people in your zip code or country are this year. And that's the math that runs insurance. So as Brian, you're indicating, when you get a, a large bloom, the insurance company adjusts all, all the checks and balances are in place. How to qualify for insurance gets harder because we're bringing the root cause an analysis from those calamities back to the qualification questions. So yes, there's a what's known as a hardening of the market. It will get harder to get cyber insurance. It will become more expensive. 
That is the market correcting itself in the way that insurance companies always do with flood insurance or other similar things in the past. Cyber is shockingly no different, although everybody seems to think it is. I can see from you know some of the examples that you've mentioned there that you come to meet leadership teams during very, very stressful periods. What would you say is the most important thing leaders should do during these types of, of crises and um, you know things they can do to prepare before ideally anything happens? Besides the the tactical things of having an incident response plan with playbooks for each of the known calamities, ransomware and other things, um, having executive tabletops and things like that. I think one of the things that differentiates what happens in that boiler room at that time is the core metal of the executive. I find that the executives that succeed look at why they exist, why their company exists. And if they go to that core truth, we are here to give medical service to people. The rest of their decisions fall into play. If they worry about their personal future or a particular issue of, of technical or liability or something like that, they'll sometimes overcorrect. I won't say they lose their way, but um, if they stick with the core reasons they took the job and the core ethics and leadership, they usually fare a lot better. And also to make sure to take care of your firefighters, your own firefighters, and maybe the ones you hire, but especially your own people during it. It is a horrific experience for everybody involved. And those leaders that bring water to a fire instead of gasoline often engender in their employees not only a better response during a crisis, loyalty afterwards, and, and a better solution moving forward for the organization. And I can imagine, you know, having executives listening to this podcast right now, maybe thinking, oh, you know, I, I really hope this doesn't happen to me. If, say, for example, um, they're a business that maybe doesn't have the resources or the budgetary um, allowances to be able to call in people like yourselves, what would be maybe two key pieces of advice that you would give them, say, hopefully this never happens, but if they were under a cyber attack, what would be kind of the two key things that you would look to do from the outset there? So the two major threats of a ransomware extortion are the encryption of your data and your inability to get it back, its availability. Uh, so one, have backups. No matter how small or large your company is, spend the right small percentage to make sure you have one set of backups that is new enough to be useful, um, but it doesn't have to be exact real time. You can lose a day or two of business, but you don't lose the entire business. Uh, so that's for comf uh, the... Um, Availability. The second part of the threat is to publish your secrets. It's confidentiality. They will steal a copy before they encrypt you. So if you can get from recover from backups, they will extort you by publishing your data. That's going to be so public. You're going to have the same reporting requirements anyway. I would just be prepared for that part if it occurs and not start off by losing five to $10 million in ransom payment and just pay it spend that time and energy getting back to business. And Brian, um, <laughs> to that end, I guess, also kind of looking into, you know, your history, your career, we always like to ask our guests if there are any, uh, I guess, events, scenarios that you might be able to share with us that have been a little bit more on the maybe crazy, funny, improbable side of things where it's like, oh my God, I can't even believe that happened. We always like to, to ask our guests if they've had a scenario that they can share with us. 
Yes, I throughout my career I've had I've way too many of those actually. Um, <laughs> at one point when I was on the Navy Anti-Terrorism Alert Center, what's known as the MTAC on the NCIS show, the Naval Criminal Investigative Service, uh, the we had the one eight hundred espionage line where people would call in for espionage reporting. But of course, uh, people that had uh, mental difficulties uh, would often often call in on that line to report UFOs or other things. So at some points, uh, if they called the Navy's line and the UFO was in flight, we would route it to the Air Force at, because the watch center over there was bored that evening as well. Now, in my defense, when the terrorism center had things to do, we were on mission and working 24-7. When you're sitting there in the mid 90s watching CNN, the only channel at the time that had news on it, and there was nothing to do for an hour or two, yes, you would you would route a weird call to your friend in the Air Force. Oh, bless. I can imagine. I can imagine what that would be like nowadays with uh, call recording that they have going on. <laughs> yes, very much so. So, Brian, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Um, it, it has really been interesting. There's a whole bunch more questions I'd really like to ask you, but uh, I think we've run out of time, so maybe we'll have you back. Um, but we always like to end our episodes by asking our guests three simple questions. So, Brian, looking back over your career, what's the one insight that you'd wish you'd known sooner or that you could go back and tell your younger self? Great question. It's not about the technology. The thing that has fared most executives well and that will help with crisis management is focusing on process. The technologies will change. Um, however, core process for data analytics and crisis management will not. Great advice. Thank you very much. And we're actually starting to collect quite an interesting reading list uh, or listening list when it comes to things like podcasts and shows and things. What are you reading or listening to at the moment? And is there anything that you'd actually recommend for our listeners? Some of mine are oldies but goodies. Edward Tufte and his data visualization series has fared me exceedingly well in my career, as has uh, the founder of uh, Tipco Spotfire, uh, The Power of Now. Uh, and yeah. a three-book series he did about data analytics. And the reason that both of those are data visualization and data analytics generated is because for data-driven decisions, it's all about the data talking to you. You have to pick a visualization that lets the data portray truth as opposed to you putting queries and portraying a bias into data. And looking a little bit towards the future, I know you were mentioning around, you know, three to five years time and your predictions there. But let's say this time next year, where do you think we'll be with ransomware and cyber insurance? I think cyber insurance, the market will continue to harden. However, that's where, as opposed to individual insurance companies, uh, brokers like Lloyd's of London, uh, Locked and Aon, one of them, I have to mention. Uh, but there are a lot of great firms. Uh, will continue to try and help their clients find the markets, but the qualifications will continue to harden, which will actually drive better focused behavior. For those information security officers, big, medium, or small companies, they're like, what should I do to be better? It's going to be in the questionnaire from the insurance company. Um, so there's a great way to use that as a dual-use technology. You look at the cyber insurance, whether you get it or not is a question, but just by going through the process, you will be better. You will be informed. Like a checklist. <laughs> it actually is. Yes, very much so. <laughs> and finally, where can our listeners learn more or hear more from you? 
Uh, best place uh, is uh, LinkedIn. I, I often uh, reflect a lot of uh, great interactions like this and articles or insights there. Absolutely. Thank you so, so much, Brian, for being with us today and, and answering our questions. It's been absolutely fascinating speaking with you. And thank you also to all of our listeners for joining us on this week's Fishy Business. It's really been a pleasure to have you with us. If you have enjoyed our podcast, please do leave us a review on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you're hearing this. And feel free to follow us on our Twitter page at Mimecast if you'd like to learn more about what we discussed today. Thanks, everyone. Until next time. Bye.